Kaylin, join me up here. She's going to be, oh, there she is. She's going to be reading the, uh, the, the scripture for today, and you're going to do a fabulous job through your mask. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them. And the disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took them up in his arms laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Amazing. Yes, give it up for Kaylin. Thank you, Kaylin, for reading that passage for us. And let's all take a look at verse 15 together. And will you read this part out loud with me? Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. Uh-oh. What does this mean for us impossibly grown-up people? For us who fuss over the forecast and the dry cleaning and whether we're free on October 18th, us who set timers and goals and concern ourselves with the business of life, is Jesus suggesting we lost something along the way? Can it be recovered? For as it is stated in this passage, and it's also preserved for us in Matthew and Luke, the project of becoming like a child seems paramount to our participation in the kingdom of God. That is, heaven. That is, the future world marked by peace, justice, and restoration that we are co-creating with God. That is, the direction and the destination of our evolution. The goodness that is also revealing itself to us now. Quick note here, because we care about language. I, I actually like the phrase kingdom of God because the word kingdom enchants me. It reminds me of Narnia and Terabithia and Wonderland and all those invisible realities that could only be accessed by a child through a threshold in our visible world. But for some of you, kingdom may have a hierarchical, patriarchal, classist, and unhelpful connotation. So we've also been trying on Irish theologian Dermot O'Murchu's alternate definition, the companionship of mutual empowerment. So use the translation that compels you. Now, of course, not all children experience the kind of childhood that we all deserve, so we won't idealize childhood as some lost paradise, and yet there are qualities that tend to persist in children, qualities we can relearn or learn anew if early trauma dictated we grow up too fast. So let's begin by thinking back to who we were as children. And if that's not helpful to you today, you can actually picture another uh, child that you know, or I have another example that you can use. This is Trey, uh, age five or six, school photo, really strong. So you've got some options to draw from. But I invite you to close your eyes for a moment, right where you are, and imagine yourself at a young age, five, six, seven. Maybe there's an old photo that you can source from to fill in some details. Or maybe you remember yourself on a particular birthday or a special trip or event. Think back to the clothes you might have been wearing. Maybe we're talking lots of corduroy, velour jumpsuits, parachute pants, butterfly clips, jelly shoes. You know who you are. Think about how you wore your hair. Be as specific as you can in conjuring that image. And now imagine that that little version of you is walking or skipping or cartwheeling down the aisle and coming to sit right at your feet. 
Welcome them into your heart with tenderness as you go ahead and open your eyes. We each have an inner child who will be an essential part of this journey. And our work, of course, is not to infantilize or reject the good and necessary things that we've learned through our evolving consciousness and the good and necessary responsibilities and stewardship that we take on throughout adulthood. This scripture is not an excuse to suddenly forget how to do the dishes. I want to be clear about that. There are traits that it is necessary we leave behind as we grow up. Rather, our work is to integrate the sacred elements of our original condition into our present maturity. For Jesus displayed not just great affection for children, but actually directed his disciples to look at them as models of faith. And in what's recorded about the life of Jesus, we have an example of what this integration looks like. So in sifting through what characteristics we might work to recover and what we should rightly outgrow, I've been asking, what is true about Jesus that is also true about children? What's in the middle of that Venn diagram? And there are many qualities that come to mind for me. I'm sure you could add to the list. We could talk about children's curiosity and beginner's mindset, their posture of trust and surrender, their ability to be wholly present and in the moment. But today I wanna to focus on just two qualities, and these are the two that seem like lost arts to me, essentials that many of us have forgotten somewhere along our faith journey, myself most emphatically included. And the first is wonder, wonder. Perhaps because of their not-in-a-hurriness, children witness so many wonders that we might well pass by. This week, my friend Lou told me that her daughter found an old piece of confetti on the ground, and she carefully picked it up, examined it, and put it in her pocket. And throughout the rest of the day and a few days after that, she would lovingly pull it out of her pocket and hold it admiringly, just staring at it. Lou couldn't see what she saw in this discarded fragment of someone else's party, but her daughter was transfixed and compelled to protect this small bit of beauty. Indeed, there are fragments of wonder scattered all around us, gifts from our good God lying in wait to delight the observant ones, little teasers of the glory of the kingdom of God that awaits. But most of us have gotten very skilled at looking without seeing. So I want to take a moment right now to activate our wonder muscle. Begin to think about some of the most delightful things you can imagine. However ordinary, Maria might mention raindrops on roses and warm woolen mittens. My list of delightfuls would start with the insane way my dog says hello to me, no matter how long I've been gone. The feeling of waking up to snow, though I'm not sure many of you in this room can appreciate that. The feeling that comes over a room when a Beyonce song comes on, that's top of my list. That's the level of specificity we're aiming for. So right where you are, turn to the folks sitting next to you and form some small groups of three, four, or five and for the next few minutes, we're going to see how much wonder we can generate in this room. In your group, you'll simply go around and take turns naming delightful things. Christmas morning, the first cookie out of the oven, the last day of school. Try not to get sidetracked or let these generate discussions. Stay focused on naming as many delightful things as you possibly can in the next two minutes. And if you're joining us online, you can participate with the people you're watching with or by dropping ideas into the Facebook chat. Be specific. All right, go for it. You got two minutes. Cream-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels, 
doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles. Wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings. These are a few of my favorite things. Girls in white dresses with blue satin sashes. Snowflakes that stay on my nose and eyelashes. Silver white winters that melt into springs. These are a few of my favorite things. When the door bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad, you got one? I simply remember mm. my What's favorite What's the thing that you love? And then I don't feel so Riding a bike. Riding a bike? Yeah. Me too. Me too. I would say... Let those conversations go. Finish up whichever one you're on. I'd love to hear a few. Did anyone come up with, a, any groups come up with a great one? Throw some out. Who's got one? Sunset. Sunset. Thank you. Perfect. Sunrise. Yes. What'd you say? Patrick cheer? What does that mean? The smell when it rains. I love that. So specific. How about one more? Yeah, way back there. What do you say? Family. Such a good one. Fantastic. Well, thank you for taking a chance and sharing some of those with the folks around you. Notice the sensations in your body, even now. Maybe they're different than they were a few moments ago. Notice what happens when you train your attention on beauty. Do you feel a little bit lighter, a bit more open, ready to be astonished? The Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, that's a boy's name we haven't thought of, uh, <laughs> wrote this little book, and it's been such a gift to me in preparing for this message. It's called Unless You Become Like This Child, and he writes, we can be sure that the human Jesus child was in amazement over everything, beginning with the existence of his loving mother then passing on to his own existence, finally going from both to all the forms offered by the surrounding world, from the tiniest flower to the boundless skies. But this amazement derives from the much deeper amazement of the eternal child who, in the absolute spirit of love, marvels at love itself as it permeates and transcends all that is. Can you see how cultivating a posture of wonder is essential to participating in the kingdom of God? 
Without it, how will we ever transition from a fixed mindset about our present reality to the hope and sense of possibility we need to imagine, experience, and co-create a better world? The other quality that I want to touch on today is zeal. Zeal. You know, I lived in Brooklyn for a few years in my early 20s, and it was the coolest that I've ever been, or ever will be, because Brooklyn's a very cool place, and it's a good place to learn how to be cool. And what I learned is that quiet is cool. And my education started right when I moved in. That first night after my parents helped me unload, I took them to a very hip, very well-reviewed restaurant in my new neighborhood. And there were no menus. The tables were covered in uh, like butcher paper tablecloth. And the waiter came over and kind of illegibly scribbled a couple options that were available for dinner and started to leave. And us Midwesterners politely asked him what we could order because we couldn't read it. And I swear he whispered what was available back to us. We went back and forth several times until we finally made out something about truffle oil and just decided to roll the dice. I learned to speak very quietly on the subway. My older, cooler roommates would kind of gently glare at me when I was talking too loudly. I learned to shrug at parties and not to flip board games if I lost them, which is probably something that I needed to learn anyway, yeah. And I learned how to, I put a lot of effort into dressing effortlessly and learned that appearing to be generally unaffected and unexcited was how to project poise or prestige. In her book, The Art of Gathering, Priya Parker talks about how the desire to be perceived as chill prevents us from risk-taking, vulnerability, and creating transcendent moments in community. You may have noticed kids have no chill. One of their most beautiful and infuriating qualities is their intensity. When you witness kids playing with abandon before we teach them to constrain their spirit, you can catch a glimpse of audacious, free, and fervent zeal. And we see this in the stories of Jesus also. Yes, he throws over the tables in the temple, but he is wildly expressive with his joy too, turning water to wine, always expanding his guest list, and spinning tales of a father whose gut reaction to the return of his wandering son is to rejoice and throw a party. From the stories that we have recorded, I would never describe Jesus as disinterested or refined. He was an unashamed enthusiast who couldn't wait to tell you what was on the menu. Nonchalance will not hasten the arrival of the kingdom of God. Certainly, it will take zeal to dismantle the injustice in our world that defies our shared humanity. How could we ever shrug at the work of restoration? I wonder if I can confess a sadness to you. As thankful as I am for all that I am learning and unlearning in this deconstructing season of my faith, marked by critical thinking and questioning amongst a rational and liberal community, I miss being able to throw my hands up and sing songs of surrender to Jesus. As grateful as I am to see how so much of what I was taught about evangelism was misguided and unnecessary and prideful, I wish I knew now how to even talk about my love for the Lord with the passion that once overflowed out of me. I miss being moved to tears by watching someone get baptized. I am grateful for how much of my childlike faith has matured and deepened in wisdom, but I long to regain the zeal that I once felt. I wonder if any of you feel this way. Maybe you've learned to be scared of zealous Christians. Maybe you're embarrassed to admit that you were one. But what if zeal was never the problem? What if Jesus adores the children who joyously run to him, who cannot contain their enthusiasm, 
If our zeal was once driven by certainty and answers, could we now imagine zeal as an authentic response to the profound wonder and mystery of authentic revolutionary love? This becomes our question then. How do we recover those aspects of our essence and include all that we've learned since the days of our innocence and ignorance? I see people modeling this beautifully, in particular people in the sunset season of life. It's a nice way of saying older people. I, uh, I recently learned about an African tribe in which the custom is to have children live with their grandparents until the age of seven. And Dr. Barbara Holmes explained that grandparents and children just understand something about each other. The children have just come from complete union with the divine, and the grandparents are preparing to go there. And so they both have something to teach and to learn in exchange. I see another example of this integration through many of you who are on a spiritual journey that has involved the courageous act of re-examining long-held convictions. Some of you have dared to re-enter a church after being deeply wounded by another community of faith. These wobbly toddler steps into a sacred reality that doesn't quite look like the one you outgrew exemplify the inclusion of the child into the adult. Some of us, however, may feel stuck in a cycle of perpetual disenchantment with our faith. Perhaps we started pulling at the Jenga blocks and the whole tower came crumbling down. We don't feel childlike at all. We feel crusty and cynical, suspicious and disappointed. There are a handful of models of faith development and evolving consciousness that give me hope for what might lie beyond disillusionment and deconstruction. And while we don't have time to look at all the stages and transitions today, I want to close by offering us a glimpse of where many of these progressions seem to lead, because as it turns out, it's rather cyclical. There is a posture, a final stage of our growth, in which we are, of course, still growing, that some call the second naivete, or second simplicity. In Spiral Dynamics, it's the holistic stage. In his book, Faith and Doubt, Brian McLaren calls it harmony. It marks a return to the same open-handed posture we possessed at the beginning of our faith journey, but now the outline has been filled in with the colors of wisdom. And from this vantage point, we can reclaim the coherence, belovedness, purpose, and direction of the universe that we once blindly accepted. But now we see that the broken, painful, and absurd parts belong too. The darkness doesn't compromise the light. In this stage of our growth, we don't have the naivete of a child, but an openness to paradox and mystery formed by the purifying fires of knowledge and experience that now expresses itself in non-discriminatory love. Is this what was meant by, dare I say it, being born again? After all our sifting, discarding, relearning, distrusting, critiquing, and reckoning, can we trust what Jesus says, that as smart and responsible and concerned and ethical and conscious as we smart moral people are, we must now become like little children in order to receive the eternal goodness on the other side of the wardrobe, just through the looking glass, imbued in all the places we stopped looking for it or were told we couldn't find it. Wonder will lead us here. And zeal will make it irresistible. Zeal will help shape the world that awaits. And wonder will uncover the eternal goodness that already is. You know, in modern times, children don't occupy quite as lowly a position as they did in Jesus' day. But if we're honest, we still prefer to look past them. 
We're annoyed with them in restaurants, on airplanes. My favorite playwright, a mom, says, we consider them a grand imposition and almost a style choice. However, they can be our greatest teachers. Whether you're a parent or not, whether you work with children or not, I invite you to take more notice of the kids in your orbit this week. Go to the park. Don't be creepy, just pay attention. <laughs> see how their eyes light up. Follow the direction of their attention, expecting to see confetti around every corner. Listen to their undignified sounds. Watch their embodied expressiveness. May we see them as Jesus did, precious and worthy of emulating. As we close in prayer, will you bow your heads with me and come into loving awareness once again of that inner child sitting at your feet, ready to be included in all of who you are becoming now. Lord, we thank you for giving us right from the beginning so many of the tools and qualities that we needed to come into awareness of you. And we lament the things that we have lost along the way and ask for your help in recovering these characteristics and letting them bring us closer to you and to helping build your kingdom. In your name we pray, amen.